Heavenly Father, we come to you this day. We ask that where we are disoriented, where we are disoriented by the things that we see in the world, and in that we are marked by despair or hopelessness or cynicism. Father, where we are disoriented by things in our relationships or our own sins. Father, where we are disoriented by the suffering that we walk through. Would you, by your word and spirit, would you reorient us to you, to your life and your truth? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. It is, um, it is a joy to be here with you. It's been a, a really good weekend so far. Um, I first uh, need to say that my wife Sally sends her love. She wasn't able to travel with me this time, um, but she does uh, send her greetings and her love. There is a lot in today's scriptures. I don't know if you caught that, but these scriptures are packed with things. And, and to really give all of that sort of fully justice to what's in there, we're going to be here for a while. So um, I hope you brought snacks. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I am going to begin, though, by looking at Job 42, um, the Old Testament passage. And, and part of this is understanding that we see in Job 1 that Job is a righteous man. That he was not uh, going through these trials and these sufferings because he had done something wrong and now he was being punished. This is when he did nothing to deserve this. And Job's friends, they come alongside and, and they're trying to comfort him. And that is true, but they're also trying to make sense of this. Because when we see tragedy, we see something go wrong, we want to understand why it happened. And so they try to make sense of it, but the problem is they can't make sense of it. They can't figure it out. Because all they could think about is in some sense you did something wrong and therefore this is the kind of punishment that you receive. Now Job is a man who has an amazing faith. So even in the midst of his suffering, you find in Job 19 these words, I know that my Redeemer lives. In my flesh I will see God with my own eyes. How my heart yearns within me. Job is a man of faith. And that's been established from the beginning and we see it here uh, in, in Job 19. But Job is also a man who has become disoriented because of all that he is walking through, because of the trials and the suffering. And so uh, Job uh, doesn't stop believing in God, but he does begin to ask God for a reason. Why did you do this? He wants to know why these things have happened to him. And, and so what happens? God speaks. Now, when God speaks, uh, the reality is He does not answer Job's question. Job never gets a why. He never gets an explanation. Listen, this is what happened. Satan was in the courts and he said, There's, you know, yada, yada, yada. He doesn't tell him. What you find as you go through uh, the Lord's answer in Job is that the primary thing that God is saying is, listen, I am God and you're not. I mean, that's the answer that He's giving them. Um, we are not in charge. And we are not in control. And there are times where I need to be reminded of this, right? We can spend so much energy and time trying to be in control, trying to manipulate people and situations to get the, uh, the outcome that we want or to make what we think is life work well for us. But the reality is, God is God and we are not. But this is actually the foundation of hope. Because then we know that we can actually lay in the arms of God who is the one who is mighty and powerful and holds all things in His hands. I want to also be clear that when, when God is saying, um, 
listen, I'm God and you're not. This was not a power play. Um, parents, you, you know, you've probably done this, right? Your kids ask you to do something, or you ask your kids to do something, and they say, why? Anybody else ever answer, like, because I'm the dad and you're not, right? Um, or my dad used to say to me, he'd ask me to do something, and I'd say, why? And he would, he would quote uh, uh, Chain's version of the Charge of Life Brigade, yours is not to question why, yours is but to do or die. Right? So this isn't God just saying, Job saying why, saying, listen, I'm God, you're not, I'm in charge, you just do it because I, I said to do it. What, what God is doing is He's trying to take Job who's been disoriented and reorient him. He's trying to reposition him and reorient and set right Job's understanding. Because God doesn't owe Job an explanation. He doesn't owe us an explanation. He actually doesn't owe us anything. We cannot obligate Him to do our will. But the reality is that, that there is a tremendous grace that is given that God actually shows up and speaks to Job. He actually comes and Job sees him. He says, I've heard about you. Now I have seen you. And in that seeing, Job's heart is set right. That God would meet him. That he would see God is actually better than any answer he could have gotten. And so you have Job's response in verse 6. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. It needs a little explanation. The word myself is not in there. So you could say, therefore I despise. But, but it's also probably better translated, I reject. And, and most likely, Job is not giving the statement of self-loathing. He is now, he's been reoriented to life and he's like, I'm rejecting where I was before, trying to put you on trial. You need to give me an answer. He's rejecting where he was before. And the word for repent in the form that it's in actually probably is better translated comfort. So Job is saying that, that even though I am still here in the dust and the ashes, I have been comforted. Because I have seen the Lord. He has come and He has reoriented me to life. He has gone through tremendous suffering. He's disoriented by all the tragedy. But now He has been comforted because God has met Him. And in God's presence now, he understands that, that what matters the most is that he sees him. Job has had an encounter with God. He never gets an answer to why. But what he gets is the answer to the deepest cry of his heart. God, have you abandoned me? And God meets him. And that is, and that is answered. And that we see it in Job being reoriented in his understanding. And in some ways, it's part of what we see happening in John 20. So the, the disciples are huddled together because they're trying to figure out what in the heck is going on. Right? This is the eve of the resurrection and, and they do not understand. In Luke's Gospel last week, if you're using Luke 24, you know the story. The women go to the tomb. Uh, they go to the tomb to anoint the body and they see the stone is gone, the tomb is empty, and, and they are troubled. They are confused. They don't understand what's going on. Then the angels appear and explain it to them. And all of a sudden now, because we actually need to have it told to us, now they get it. And what do they do? They go running back to the disciples. Listen, we went, the stone was moved, and, and the tomb is empty. Angels came and they spoke these words. And, and then we remembered what Jesus said. And what is verse 11 of Luke 24 say? When the apostles heard Him, 
It said that seemed like nonsense. Right? Nonsense. I mean, of course it seems like nonsense. Dead people stay dead. Um, even if, if you were believing in that time in, in the resurrection to life, there was a sense of a resurrection at the very end of time only. And so what they were saying made no sense to them at all. The disciples are disoriented. They are disoriented by all that they had walked through. And, and now they're hiding behind locked doors because uh, they're terrified. Here is the man they had followed uh, for these years. They had given their lives to him. They had believed in him, trusted in him, that they really thought that, that he was the Messiah. And they see him arrested. They see him beaten. And they see him crucified. And guess what? His followers could be next. So they are, they are disoriented, they are terrified, uh, they, they are trying to figure out what in the heck is going on, what they should do, and boom, Jesus appears in their midst. Doesn't matter that the door is locked. This is the risen Lord where no locked doors can hold Him out, and He says to them, peace be with you. Now there are layers of meaning in this. Uh, the word shalom, a peace, was a standard greeting, so it certainly carries something of that that He's saying, hello. But, but there's actually a lot more going on here. Um, the disciples needed to hear Jesus' pronouncement of peace. The disciples who, when Jesus was arrested, fled and deserted Him. They needed to hear uh, the Lord say, peace be with you. Because what you could expect in that situation is a rebuke. Think of Peter. Uh, Peter, who was told that he was going to deny Jesus three times, he said, I, would, I will never do that. Peter needed to hear, peace be with you. Because what you would expect in Peter's shoes was with Jesus saying, listen, you know, remember that conversation we had? I told you so. I am so disappointed. I knew you would do this. What does he need to hear? He needs to hear, peace be be with you. Jesus isn't speaking a word of rebuke. He's not speaking a word of disappointment. He is speaking the message of peace. And, and in one sense, this is the echo of what the angels proclaimed when Jesus' birth was announced. Peace on earth. This is the, the, the work of the Gospel. That there is one who has come to bring peace and make peace between us and God. The peace that has been broken since we rebelled against Him. Uh, the disciples desperately needed to hear this word of peace. And, and He is now the Prince of Peace. And because of His work, their sins are forgiven. So He doesn't come with a rebuke. He doesn't come to chastise them. And then it says, Jesus shows them His hands and His side. To say, no, this is a real physical body. You're not seeing a ghost. This is a, a real physical body. And it says, they were overjoyed. I mean, they were joyfully overjoyed. This is like a strong sense of, of joy welling up in them. Can you imagine what they were feeling? I mean, think about it, because this is a story we know, right? But, but can you imagine walking through the horrors of, of what you saw from Jesus' betrayal to His crucifixion to His death and His burial, and now He's here. It is a joy that is welling up. This is the same joy that, that Jesus told them in John 16, the night He was arrested, that they would have. He said, now is the time of your grief, but I will see you again. And you will rejoice, and no one can take your joy away. Theirs joy is now a joy that cannot be taken away because Jesus can no longer be taken away. 
This is what you heard echoed in the reading we had from Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. Jesus says, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. I am alive forever and ever. Death has, has, been, has lost the battle. That His joy that now comes from His presence, it cannot be taken away because He cannot be taken away. He now holds the keys of death and Hades. Which means now, I have broken the power of sin. And I have broken the power of death and the enemy. He has set us free from the prison that has held us bound from our moment of rebellion in Genesis 3. What I find interesting that again, you know, you can just read through stories and skip over things and not realize it. They are joyful at this moment. And what are the words that comes out of Jesus' mouth next? Peace be with you. They're filled with joy. They, they are not expecting rebuke. They're, there's nothing that's happening um, that would mean that He needs to say, calm them down. Peace be with you. Why does he say it again? He says it again because what is going to follow changes everything. John 20, verses 21 and 22. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. Now you can begin to see why they need that message of peace. Because what just happened to him? Right? They've seen his ministry. They saw how he was opposed by the religious leaders. And now he's saying, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. This is why they needed that message of peace as they begin to do this work. Now, this place of, of saying, as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. This is not God just piling on another obligation of something we've got to do. And this is not God um, adding to some um, list of, of duties. Because the reality is, um, not only is it not effective to do that, when we feel an obligation to do something that we don't want to do, what is our motivation level for doing it? And it is incredibly low. We, we don't do well with obligation. This is actually an invitation into something. And this is actually, again, what we see when Jesus breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to be clear that, that this is not the Pentecost experience. There are people who try to conflate what happens here with what happens in, in the book of Acts. This is not that. Uh, this is much more along the lines of what you would see the Apostle Paul writing about in Romans 8 9 when he says, if you do not have the Spirit of Christ, you do not belong to Christ. Uh, because the reality is, we are dead in our sins. We can't raise ourselves to life. If we are those who, as Jesus said in John 3, hate the light, why would we then turn towards the light? It's not that we come to faith because we happen to be intellectually smart enough to figure it out, put the pieces together, and say, now I believe. We don't have that ability. What is happening is that our coming to faith, our being rescued, only happens because the Spirit of God brings us to life. And then our response to that is the place of repentance. So this is, at first, at the least, this is a picture of that, of the Spirit of God that is coming into them, that is making them those who can believe, bringing the life of Jesus, applying the work of the cross into their lives. But it's also more than that. 
This is a very symbolic action that he breathed on him because it, it recalls what happened in Genesis 2 when the Lord God took the dust of the earth and he breathed into it and it became then a living person. In the beginning, we were breathed into in the same way. And when you read Genesis, what you find is that this breathing in is what makes us in the image of God. It is this breath. And so what you see then in Genesis 2 is just an unpacking of what you have in Genesis 1 where it says God created mankind in His own image. In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. This breath is what makes us in His image. And so to understand a little bit more about what's happening in John 20, we need to understand what this meant in the beginning. Because being made in the image of God is probably better understood as we were made as His image. We were meant to be His glory and His presence in creation. This was uh, something that was speaking fundamentally to our identity, to who we were. This is what was intended from the beginning. And the story itself lays out some of the glory of that. In Genesis 1, we see the wonder of creation and the days that come and the Lord saying, and it is good. He looks at what He has made. It is good. And then we come to the sixth day. We come to the, the pinnacle of creation where God makes us male and female in His image. And God's response is, yeah, this is good. Yeah, this will do. It's okay for now. No, it is very good. There is such a sense of God's amazing delight and glory which comes because He breathed His life into us. That we were then His image, His glory, His presence in creation. Which is why Psalm 8 says we were crowned with glory and honor. And all of that is lost in our rebellion in Genesis 3. In our rebellion, when we decide that we want to be like God instead of living a life dependent on God, um, what happens is the image of God that we are created in now becomes distorted by sin. It's not that the image of God is erased. It's not gone. Uh, but it is distorted by sin. Genesis 5 uh, lays it out actually well. It says in those first three verses, Adam and Eve were made in the image of God. Then they had a son, Seth. Seth in the image of Adam. This is what Paul picks up in Romans 5. We are in the image of Adam. And the image of Adam is the image of God that has been distorted, has been corrupted by our sin. And so it's not that the image of, of God is gone. Every single person bears this glory that comes of something of the image of God. But we also all bear a brokenness and a fallenness because it is the fallen image. And so there's a unique glory that each person has, but there's also a unique brokenness that each one of us has. And, and maybe the way to say it is, we bear enough of the image of God to haunt us. That sense of, I was meant for something more. Things should be, I was meant for something better. We're born with a hunger and a longing for what was. With our rebellion, shame enters for the first time. So now, Adam and Eve are ashamed, not just of what they have done, but also of who they are. And so they try to hide, they cover themselves with fig leaves. And from that point forward, we do all that we can to try to hide and to try to cover up our own shame and our guilt. But the reality is that shame and that guilt is actually our identity. That is the identity that we are born with, separated from God. We have gone from being in His image, crowned with, with glory and honor, to being crowned with shame and guilt. 
which is why we desperately try in our lives to do things to find some sense of worth, our meaning, our identity, our purpose. And our rebellion was so devastating, it actually brought all of creation with it. So we are no, we know that there's something wrong inside. We are born with a vacuum inside, of, of a vacuum of, of wanting to be seen and known and loved, to have value, to have purpose, to know who we are. And that's because we are born with a sin nature. It is not that we sin, we do bad things, and thus we become sinners. It's that we are born with the principle of sin, and therefore we sin. We are born those who are alienated and separated from God. We feel guilty, why? Because we are guilty. We feel shame because there's actually something shameful about us. This is the language that is used, and and you see it in Romans 5 when when Paul talks about we are enemies of God. Or you see it in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 3 where it says, By nature, what we deserve is the wrath of God. But we are not left there. What we see, especially on this day, as Jesus breathes into the disciples, is that God's purpose has always been this restoration. This restoration of this breath that brought life in the image of God in the beginning. This has always been His purpose. So if you look at the end of of Scripture, you look in Revelation chapter 13 and verse 9, it says that Jesus is the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Do you ever think about that? Slain from the creation of the world. Yes, it had to take place in time and space, but, but what this is saying is that God actually knew before He created anything that we would rebel. And not only did He know that we would rebel, He knew what it would cost Him for us to be restored. So the moment He created, Jesus became the crucified God. This was God's plan for restoration from the beginning. It is what you see also in, in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4. For He, God, chose us in Him, in Jesus, before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in His sight. You are chosen, you are rescued by Jesus, not because of, of some intellectual decision you came to. This happens before you were born, before your parents were born, before the crucifixion, before the flood, before creation of the world. It says God chose you. He knew. He loved you before He started anything. And that knowing and that loving of you meant that Jesus had to be crucified. It's also interesting to think about um, if He chose us before the creation of the world, if Jesus was the one who was, who was crucified from the creation of the world, it's not only mind-boggling that God went ahead and did this. You know, if I were God, I, might not have, I probably would have gone a different course. Let's try plan B, somebody who doesn't rebel. But, um, but it's not just amazing that that piece is there. But think about it. If He chose you before the creation of the world, when He made everything, He had you in mind. There is something profound in understanding that all that was created was created with us in mind. This was His plan from the beginning. His purpose has always been for us life and life to the full. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 7, No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. 
He's speaking about this mystery. And a mystery in Scripture is not like a mystery novel. If you get enough clues, you can put it together and figure it out. Mystery in Scripture means something you can never figure out unless God reveals it to you. So this mystery that, that Jesus would come and come as one of us, go to the cross, be raised from the dead for us and for our restoration. This is the mystery that God had planned from before time began. And it was His plan that was destined for our glory. It was His work of restoration for our glory. That we could again be those who are crowned with glory and honor instead of being crowned and defined by sin and death. So when you see Jesus breathing into the disciples in John 20, it is a work of restoration that is calling to mind the original creation. It is this work of restoration that we are then being made new creations. And it took the sacrifice of Jesus, the Son of God, in order to redeem us and rescue us for this to happen. Our rescue is not dependent on us in some way. It's dependent on Jesus and what He did for us and on His grace. Uh, The Gospel is not shape up, try to live a good life, and maybe God will love you. It is a proclamation of what He has done to rescue us. And that we then are made new creations. God made Him who had no sin to be sin, so that in Him we might be the righteousness of Christ. Jesus becomes our sin, and we become the righteousness of God. We become children of God. We become new creations. And this is why Paul can say there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, some people take that to mean there's no conviction. You can be, you should be convicted of your sin. We can feel a deep sorrow and agony for when we sin, but but there should not be condemnation that comes with it. Because that sin has been paid for. That all of our sins have been paid for. Because of this breath coming in, we are made new creations by God the Holy Spirit. And what that means is that we are not just pardoned criminals who have somehow escaped punishment but are still guilty of our crime. We become children of God, new creations, the righteousness of God, sons and daughters of the King of Kings. And Jesus is our righteousness. And His righteousness cannot be corrupted. You see that in in the Gospels when Jesus comes and He touches a man with leprosy. You know, in the Old Testament, if you had leprosy, the command was you had to walk around and yell out, unclean, unclean so that nobody would come near you. Because leprosy, it was a picture of sin in the Old Testament, but it was seen that if you are unclean and somebody touches you, whoever touches you becomes unclean. Jesus touches the man with leprosy, which is an amazing act in itself. How long had it been since this man had felt human touch? He touches him. And does Jesus get leprosy? No, He doesn't become unclean because His righteousness cannot be corrupted. What He touches becomes clean. If we understand that, that we now have the righteousness of Jesus, that it cannot be corrupted, that we, we know that there cannot be another fall. Genesis 3 will not happen again. This is why we can say that more is gained in the resurrection of Jesus from the grave than was lost in our fall. 
Because all of our sins have been paid for. And in that, we understand that, that my salvation is not dependent on what I can do. It's dependent on what He has done. And He is my righteousness. Which means that I can have this assurance that nothing in all of creation can ever separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. So we're still going to sin. Absolutely. But there's something deeper than our sin. What is deeper than our sin is the grace of God. What is deeper than our sin is that Jesus is our righteousness. And therefore, that sin no longer owns us and no longer defines us. This is this picture of what's happening as this breath comes because it is a restoration of who we were meant to be in the beginning. It is a setting right of all that was set wrong in our rebellion. It is, it is this work of, of God elevating who we are to Him. That's why Paul writes these amazing words in 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into His likeness with an ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. We are being transformed into His likeness with an ever-increasing glory. And this is the work of the Holy Spirit. This is the work of that breath of God. Having that foundation, understanding what is happening when Jesus is breathing on them and saying, receive the Holy Spirit. Now we can actually come to these, these words, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Yes, we are a sent people. Uh, we are sent in the same way, which means that we are sent for the same purpose and to do the same things. Uh, Jesus said that His purpose, uh, that He came to seek and to save what was lost. He came for the restoration of all things. And so that is our purpose. That as Jesus was sent, we are also sent. Every single one of us, not just those who happen to wear funny collars backwards on their shirts, Every one of us is a sent person to be a part of the restoration of all things, to seek and to save what was lost. And you see it happening in Acts uh, with the apostles in Acts chapter 5. They understand they're sent for the same purpose and they cannot be stopped. Beat them and put them in jail, an angel will set them free. Beat them and they will rejoice that they're being counted worthy of suffering for His name. They understood that they were called to the proclamation and the demonstration of the kingdom of God. Now what is interesting is you've got a chunk of time between Jesus breathing on them and saying receive the Holy Spirit. And, and it is that place of, of them coming to faith and having the, the image of God, their identity rooted and set in Jesus. And then it is 50 days later on the day of Pentecost when we see them being empowered by the Holy Spirit. So Jesus sends them in John 20. They don't actually step into it until the book of Acts. But there is actually something in this that, that, that mirrors the order of creation. In the beginning, we were created in the image of God. That was our identity. That was, that was speaking deeply to who we were. And then we were set to work in the garden. That place of ruling and subduing, it actually comes out of the identity of who we were. That they were then living out who they were. And the problem is, is that from the time that we rebel, we lose who we are. We lose our identity in Christ because we've broken connection with the Father who is the one who bestows our identity. 
And when we don't have an identity, we don't have a sense of worth or identity, we get things backwards. We think our worth and our identity rises out of what we do. So if I do good and I do well, or if I'm a great parent or I'm great in my work, then I have identity, then I have value. But that is a backwards order. And that is an order that will always cause us to stumble into sin. The order is to be rooted in who we are. And then we live out who we are as His presence. I want to say just a brief word about Thomas before I wrap up. Um, what, is, what is Thomas often called? He is called Doubting Thomas. Does this seem fair to you? You know all the disciples doubted. I mean, they, they said the disciples, the, even the women didn't understand when they went to the tomb. And, and the disciples said, boy, this just seems like nonsense. Uh, it, they, all, uh, just, they all doubted. But what I want to see in that story is something similar to what we saw in Job. The kindness of God and that Jesus meets Thomas. And He meets him with the exact words that Thomas used when he laid down his criteria, I'm not going to believe in less. But Jesus meets him with those words not to condemn him, but with compassion. And we see that, that um, there's no indication that Thomas then said, okay, I'm going to put my hand in and actually see. There was something for him of just seeing Jesus was enough. Now we don't see Jesus in the same way that the disciples did. But this is why Jesus spoke those words, blessed are those who do not see and believe. But the reality is, we have one better. That we, as those who have been raised with Christ, those who have been rescued by Jesus, we are given God the Holy Spirit to be the presence of Jesus in our lives. That we then have the ability to actually see Him in everything that we do and in every place that we go. There is a, a greater seeing that we are allowed. And again, I want to say that Jesus didn't breathe on Thomas the same way that He did on the disciples. But again, that's just because that breathing was a picture of what the restoration of the cross does to our lives. First, the Holy Spirit applies the work of the cross into our lives that we are no longer marked by sin and death, that we are set free. And then the Holy Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And the Holy Spirit then is transforming us into His likeness with an ever-increasing glory. And this all speaks to who we are. It all speaks to our identity. And that is the right order. And then we can be sent as He was sent. Sent for the same purpose and sent for the same in the same glory. But if we are doing this rooted out of who we are as sons and daughters of the King of Kings, we don't enter into this out of a sense of obligation or duty. This is the joy of living out who God has made me to be. There's no, there's no obligation, there's no, there's no weight or duty in that. This is actually an invitation to be more fully who God has made you to be. And it comes because we know that when He comes and meets us, that He actually answers the deepest cries of our hearts. Whatever those cries may be, it could be like Job's, God, have you forgotten about me? It could be, do I matter? Do you love me? Do I have any value? There can be all kinds of, of things that, that come and that are really just cries of shame that we are marked with. Those cries of our hearts. He comes and He meets the deepest cries of our hearts. And that 
than what rises out of that meeting of the Holy Spirit applying the work of the cross into our lives is this restoration. This restoration of the image of God. This restoration of our identity in Christ. That we are new creations. No longer defined by sin and shame and death. And the more we know this truth, the more we can stand in the glory of what He has done for us, the less self-conscious we become. If I am... If I am worried about what you think about me because I need you to affirm me so I can feel good about who I am, then I am focused on me and not you. We walk in this world, our default is to walk in a way that is self-conscious. But when we are rooted in what the work of Jesus has done in making us children of God, we don't have to be self-conscious. Because the One who made everything is conscious of us. And He cares for us. And He loves us. And so we don't have to be self-conscious or self-seeking or self-focused. Then we can be empowered by the Spirit of God to be His presence and His kingdom and His restoration in this world. To understand that we are a sent people. But that first speaks to who we are before it speaks to what we do. And in that as we step into who He has made us to be, we are stepping as His presence, as His glory, as His kingdom, as part of the restoration of this world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there are times that, whether it's from busyness of life, or there are things in our stores, or whatever is going on, that, that we become disoriented. And we lose who we are in You. And when that's true, um, the, the thought of being a sent people feels like an obligation and a burden and something that we can't do. Would You, by Your grace and Your Word and Your Spirit, reorient us to the truth of Your life for us. To the glory of what You have done in making us Yours making us children of God, new creations, sons and daughters of the King of Kings. Father, that in that being reoriented to life, that we would stand in who You have made us to be, knowing that simply by who we are, we are Your presence wherever we are. That there is no such thing as a secular job for those who have been rescued by Jesus. And Father, in that, would You grow in us the ability to let go of the places where we are self-conscious and self-seeking, knowing that You hold us, that You hold all things in Your hands, that there would be a joy that rises in us of being a sent people, sent into this world that desperately needs Your life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.